Farm Food Facts, where every farmer, every acre, and every voice matter. Welcome to the Farm Food Facts interactive podcast presented by the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance for Wednesday, December 5th, 2018. Today, our thought leader is Mary Shulman, former director and a current advisor to the Agribusiness Program at Harvard Business School. Mary's an internationally recognized thought leader on the future of the global agri-food industry. Later in the podcast, we'll begin our Christmas celebration with a discussion with Steve Meyer, Christmas tree farmer extraordinaire. Let's get started. Mary, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Let's get started by talking about the evolving definition of sustainability. And for many, it's getting a bit confusing these days. It's clearly much more than just carbon and water now. Help us understand. Oh, Phil, good morning. It's, uh, it's, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, sustainability has been following this fairly closely for the last you know, 10 or 12 years or so um, from my time at Harvard and then also in industry. The you know, I think when we started out, we all felt a little uncomfortable. We thought maybe this was just about greenwashing, but I've, I've seen this unfold now. The boundaries just keep expanding to include uh, many other dimensions. And so we have the typical environmental concerns, the carbon, the water, the biodiversity, which are extremely important at the farm level. But the consumer now starts lumping into areas of sustainability, things like animal welfare, um, fair labor practices. Um, health and nutrition, I think, falls into the boundaries of sustainability, which, um, you know, starts to tie together the fact that, you know, the food that we eat has, you know, that, that you know, most important link to the health of, um, you know, ourselves individually, but also the health of, of the entire population and then, of course, the health of the planet. With all these confusing messages out there, and certainly now having the consumer as as part of this, um, are we at the risk of of losing um, a a good definition of sustainability on the farm? And how can we make some clarity here? Well, I think it's important thing to me is that on the farm is this understanding that you are a part of this chain that you know ultimately ends up with the consumer. For almost every product that's there, whether it's in the form of food, whether it's in the form of fuel, whether it's in the form of what we wear on the bodies, and also in the form of environmental services, the fact that, um, you know, the fact that, you know, farms have pollinator areas and um, protected woodlands, or I I believe we're even going to go to start, you know, calculating the carbon sinks of certain areas. Um, So I think it's very challenging at the farm level today to figure it out, because historically, you know, what I always hear and I grew up, uh, my dad was a farm equipment dealer, um, bought a farm um, that I still own today. So I consider myself, you know, a farmer, even though I'm not the actual producer of that land, um, is that to be part of this, this system, it's, you know, this, that what you do is very important to the consumer, but it's not just about selling a nice sustainability story that, right. oh, we're sustainable. We've been, you know, here for generations. It's actually having the measurement the proof to back it up. And I think that's one of the most exciting things today that at the farm level is we have new tools, new technologies that allow us to measure in a much finer way. And because of that, to manage in a much more accurate way. So thinking about, you know, digital agriculture, um, taking that, whether it's on, you know, how to grow crops, how to, you know, how you're managing livestock, dairy herds. And, and that's an exciting thing because I think that's where we can finally link things together. But it means that actions need to be taken at the farm. And then ultimately, 
you know, pulled up the chain into some bigger story to get to the consumer so they'll have their concerns addressed. And that we have, you know, real metrics. So let's stick with the consumer for a second. How are the expectations of today's, um, I'm going to call them engaged and empowered consumers, uh, presenting both opportunities and challenges for food companies and ag producers? Well, it's it's, uh, an exciting time. I do think they're engaged uh, today. Many more questions about, you know, where food comes from, how it was produced. And they're very um, empowered because of the social media avenues that are out there. It's very easy to to make your yourself known. But in the particular driver behind that are these, you know, this group of millennial consumers that we talk about, you know, so I have a 26 year old son and then and his new wife who are, are, you know, exactly in that group. And they're so much more careful about, you know, the food choices that they make. Um, it's not that they're vegetarian. It's not that they buy organic, but they do ask questions. They do look at labels. And I think in particular, there's three dimensions of that. You know, first of all, I think to them, they are the strongest or make perhaps the first in this group that will only get stronger is linking, you know, what they eat to health. So mm-hmm. to them, food is health. Um, it's not just calories. It's actually the nutrition that goes in the body. That's a very positive change. Second, um, so the food is adventure. You know, maybe many of them have been caught up in this, uh, you know, coming out of the Great Recession, maybe started in um, with jobs that don't pay as much. The majority of them have substantial student loans. So instead of being able, say, to go to some exotic country, they can eat exotic foods for dinner. And their typical diet, you know, when I grew up, it was like meat and potatoes, you know, <laughs> right. seven right. seven nights a week. Right. You know, yeah. now one night it's Thai, it's Mexican, <laughs> it's uh, Chinese, it's Italian, it's and then Peruvian. And all of these, you know, even more um, differentiated offerings. And so many of those don't have, you know, a heavy protein. What we would think of as a normal protein component is part of that. So that has an impact on the system overall. The third piece of it is a very important piece, which for them, food is identity. So they're making choices based on the food they're eating actually reflecting the values they have. And that's where this sustainability piece really comes in. Many of them don't trust big companies anymore, um, and they don't trust big farming. They might trust farmers, but it's, there's a separation there about you know, the practices versus the individual. And I think that's the link that we have to, to navigate to. And that's where actually metrics come in because it's, um, if we can show that the farmer is, you know, doing the right thing and to do that, you need the actual proof behind it. And that right thing, whether it's on a small scale or a large scale leads to a, a journey of continuous improvement and, Scale often provides the ability to do things that a small farmer can't do. You can do it, you know, if you're a bigger farmer. But that story needs to be told very carefully and to reach into this values-oriented consumer. So, Mary, how do we get those metrics out there? You know, you mentioned social media. Um, You know, is it putting some kind of metrics on a package? Is it, you know, on social media? How, how do we communicate what's going on on the farm in a, in a very good way so that we do get that trust of the consumer? You know, we're all still looking for that. I don't believe there's a magic bullet around it. Um, you know, I think I look, you know, back at some of the campaigns that are there. And, the, and I think the problem is, is we get, a, you know, many, many mixed messages. And of course, right. the way... Absolutely. 
that our you know, market-driven economy works, it means that you're looking for that area differentiation. So you think about um, the messages you know, over the last few years that you know, um, companies like Chipotle or Whole Foods have gone out with that call out and say, look, you should be asking, you should be really concerned about what the traditional food system is producing, and here's why we have something better. And I don't at all dispute the market-driven piece of it, that differentiation. What I am concerned about is putting negative and many times unfactual identities on the other system. So like going head-to-head, but not because I'm better, but it's because you're bad. Right. Um, so that leads to a lot of confusion. And I think that, you know, the more, uh, you know, different pieces that get chunked out there, it just gives rise to more and more confusion at the consumer level. The one program that I've seen that's an encompassing program that has gone as far as anything else I've seen in the world to address this is something that's going on in Ireland. In 2012, Ireland introduced a national sustainability program for their agri-food sector. That's and, Origin Green, um, right? That is Origin Green. That okay. is Origin Green. Yep. And yep. Um, that's, that's what it was named. It, it builds on Ireland's sustainability credentials. They were already seen as a green country. But um, they realized that to go to market with this and for it to be a competitive advantage. And this is Origin Green is a commercially driven program. It's not something that it's just kind of a nice thing to do. It's commercially driven. It's about getting um, higher value for the food they produce because they're a small country so the, and their costs are high. Um, so it was all about differentiation. And the idea was, is we'll build on our green credentials, but we need to provide that proof. And so that program actually starts at the farm level. They had already had quality assurance audits going on on the beef, most of the beef farms in the country. They added um, various sustainability dimensions to that. They have a, 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 they measure carbon, they measure biodiversity, they measure water. They ask for farmers to report on, you know, animal health practices. There's actually a, like a social piece of that as well. So now that at the farm level is expanded across from beef to dairy to pork to, um, to seafood. So it covers Everything they're doing at the farm level, where farmers are reporting results, they're audited every 18 months. And then at the food processor level, they are making commitments there and signing up to become a member of the Origin Green program based on a plan that they build specially as saying, this is relevant for me. So the big challenge about sustainability, because it has all these different dimensions, is how do you make it relevant? And it's, to me, sustainability is not a checklist. It's not saying I've done these 12 things, therefore I'm sustainable. Sustainability is about a journey of continuous improvement. And so the food manufacturers sign up. Um, those plans are actually inspected by a third party on the outside to make sure they're tough, tough enough. They make commitments every year. And um, if you fast forward today, now something like 90% of Ireland's food and drink exports are coming out from Origin Green verified suppliers. So it's been a so, huge uptake in two, from 2012 to, to 2018. So let me ask you a question. If we've got this mm-hmm. model in Ireland called Origin Green, right. why, why can't we or should we you know, make you know, United States Origin Green? If, if we've got that right. model that works, that has over right. 90%, it's clear, you know, it's, it's empowering to consumers, to the farmers, to retailers, and so on. Can't we do that here? 
I would be a huge champion of that piece. It just means there's a lot of moving parts to bring together because this is a basically a a, a public-private partnership. If you think about it, it's um, the fact that the government is actually helping to lead this program. There's an agency called Board BIA that's a, a, a state agency. It's funded with some monies directly from the government, but also other monies like our checkoff systems and beef and dairy um, go into Board BIA, and they're charged with um, marketing Irish food and drink around the world. So they have commercial aspirations. They administer this program. They also oversee the farm audits. But, you know, you think about our complex system here. In Ireland, it's pretty simple because we've got about 5 million people, lots of farms because the farms are small, 18,000 dairy farms, you know, 70,000 beef farms. So many, many farms that they have to touch. But a, um, you know, kind of a, a, a smaller total universe. Um, so one piece is trying to get that alignment, you know, everybody to agree that this is the best thing to do. And then to be able to have that activation program to where the communication goes out there, the messaging gets back, you know, to the farm, to the supply chain to, to adopt this. And what's happened at the overall general public level has been substantial because the ability to, to celebrate the wins is much easier now because the wins are coming at the country level. Sometimes there's also challenges around that. It can start, you know, you have um, outside groups that can start coming in and saying, look, you know, look, Ireland, you're making the sustainability claim, but, you know, your emissions from animals are actually going up instead of going down. That's because their dairy herds are increasing. But um, it at least gives them some place to start. They have the baseline measurement, and that's what we don't have here yet, especially across the farm set. So if we could do one thing today, if we could get those baseline mm-hmm. measurements, I think that would be a tremendous step forward. So Mary, thanks so much for your insights. Um, happy holidays to you and yours. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Phil. It was great to be here. What the latest climate report means for agriculture. The latest government report on climate change includes severe warnings for U.S. ag as increasing warm temperatures and higher CO2 levels could bring about longer dry spells less nutritious crops, and declining yields. Natural disasters are also expected to be more frequent and more severe. This report is the fourth annual climate risk assessment from the United States Global Change Research Program, and the report was written with the help of 13 government agencies and some 300 experts, including scientists, at the USDA. What grocers need to know is that the effects of climate change are becoming significantly more detrimental to ag production and yields. And with this latest government warning regarding its severity, farmers and ranchers have an opportunity to really lead the sustainability movement and become part of the solution. In fact, dairy farmers are already taking the lead on implementing practices that will help reduce their environmental footprint. This is how dairy farmers can lead the way in environmental stewardship. The National Milk Producers Federation has launched the new Environmental Stewardship Continuous Improvement Reference Manual, which is an evolving resource of on-farm management practices that are designed to reduce a farm's environmental footprint. The National Milk Producers Federation, along with the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy and the World Wildlife Fund, also released an online tool. Farm ES, which will allow dairy farmers to measure their energy use and greenhouse gas emissions in order to identify even more opportunities for 
improvement on the farm. This manual will become an extremely useful tool that can provide resources and guidance to help farmers make these improvements in various areas of farm management, including feed, manure, energy, forage, and animal health. What grocers need to know is that every farm is unique, depending on its location and what is being produced. So there may not be a one-size-fits-all type of solution to lowering emissions. However, individual farmers can collaborate in order to determine multiple strategies and the best management practices that will adhere to the context for each individual farm. And this new manual is a comprehensive resource of farm management practices that can help each particular farmer reduce their environmental footprint in a significant way. And there are many different methods to be explored, such as this one. There are ways to grow more food with less pollution. The Environmental Defense Fund recently released its 2018 annual report, and it details how EDF has expanded conservation practices to millions of acres of farmland. The EDF has partnered with major food buyers, including Land of Lakes, Smithfield Foods, and Walmart, as well as commodity organizations like the National Corn Growers Association. And the EDF claims it has improved fertilizer and soil management on more than 3.6 million acres of corn. In fact, their goal is to eventually have such practices in place on 45 million acres, which would be half of all U.S. cornfields. Their hope is to achieve this by the year 2022. EDF is a trusted name in the countryside, according to Iowa grain farmer Bill Couser, who with his son Tim helps other farmers adopt new techniques. EDF shows companies how farmers operate. Neither of us has all the answers, but EDF has persuaded us to move in directions I did not know were possible, he said. What grocers need to know is on the heels of the government's stark climate change warnings, farmers can observe new techniques like using fertilizer more efficiently as a means to minimize pollution and reduce greenhouse gases. And corn farmers aren't the only ones getting creative in terms of integrating sustainability practices. Two companies are joining forces to capture methane from hog manure lagoons. Smithfield Foods and Dominion Energy are launching a plan to capture methane emissions that contribute to climate change. The two companies will spend $125 million each over the next 10 years to cover hog lagoons in North Carolina, Virginia, and Utah in order to capture methane gas and convert that gas into energy. The aim is to cover 90% of the company's hog finishing spaces so that methane emissions are reduced and the overall environmental impact is lessened. In addition, Dominion, which has over 65,000 miles of pipelines, is also in discussions about how to capture methane from a food waste and wastewater treatment facility in Salt Lake City. What grocers need to know is, as the ongoing climate issue becomes more and more apparent, farmers, ranchers, and the agriculture community as a whole are taking steps to try out new practices that could have a positive impact towards reducing greenhouse gases and protecting our environment. This inspiring attempt from two businesses to take something like hog manure, which is going to happen as a byproduct of pork farming, and convert it into renewable energy sets an example for everyone to explore innovative ways that we can take inevitable waste and convert it into something useful. 
It's time to hear direct from the farmer. And we couldn't have a better farmer this time of year than Steve Meyer. He and his wife, Teresa, and their family have been providing the greater Jackson, Missouri area with unique Christmas experiences, offering customers a choose and harvest or pre-cut tree. Their retail Christmas shop is filled with ornaments, decorations, locally made products, and some of the best baked goods ever. At the farm, they also sell fresh wreaths, roping, grape blankets, arrangements, swags, and more. Their Belgian horses have taken the spotlight as they're the most popular way to get to the Christmas tree fields. They've been growing family traditions since 1988 and pride themselves on making every Christmas season better for all. Steve, welcome to Farm Food Facts. Thank you, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here and be able to speak about something that's near and dear to my heart. Obviously, when when you take a look at at what you guys are doing, it's fabulous. Uh, So let's start off. What's the Christmas tree crop look like this year? Um, Are we growing more? What's the quality of the trees? Give me the 101. At the moment, we have some young growers that are now interested in starting in the business. However, as I'm sure you're aware, to be in the Christmas tree industry, It takes six to seven years from the time you plant your first tree so you can harvest that tree. So it's a long-term investment for lots of people. We do have a good selection of Christmas trees available to anyone that would like to have one this year. And the quality is excellent that I can see so far. So, Steve, what's the trend of Christmas trees? Are they larger? Are they smaller? I mean, what we've seen is a lot more people now living in apartments and so on. Are we going to see tiny Christmas trees? You will be seeing some that we call tabletop trees, Bill. You'll also be seeing some, depending on the part of the country that you're going to be living in. We have houses that have now 14, 15, 16 foot ceilings, and they're wanting a tree to accommodate that. So we go from anywhere from about a four-foot tree up to about a 14-foot tree. The most popular, it seems like, is a six to seven, eight-foot tree for most houses, though. So give me some of the process. How do you grow Christmas trees? You've mentioned it's six to seven years until the the trees, um, you know, are mature enough to to sell. Uh, But what's the process of actually growing Christmas trees? It's a very unique process to watch because if you take time to see the full process, it's supplied by what we call a nursery. They'll take seed from pine cones. They'll plant those and keep it into a nursery bed for up to two years or more. Then growers throughout the United States buy from either the state nursery or a private nursery what we call seedlings. The seedlings are then planted into fields uh, where they're raised to the harvest time. And as I told you, this is approximately six to seven years to have a marketable tree. And that'd be a tree somewhere around the seven foot area. Most of the growth takes approximately one year for each foot of tree that you grow. Huh. I didn't realize that. So let's talk about sustainability. Um, You know, sustainability is something that every farmer and every rancher is really focused on. Uh, Besides adding love and joy to our homes, what role does a Christmas tree play in our environment uh, as it relates to sustainability? Still, a Christmas tree is what we call a green product. It provides oxygen for people when it's planted out in the fields, and it helps fight the carbon dioxide problem that our country and other places have. We also consider a Christmas tree, a real Christmas tree, a renewable, recyclable resource. 
In other words, as you take it and harvest it, it's placed in your house for family tradition, for holiday events, and to bring joy into the house. After that, you can set it outside and use it for other uh, factors, such as a bird sanctuary. The birds love mm, it. To, that's a cool idea. To... That's a very cool idea. I've, n- I've never seen that before, but that's very smart. Yes, and then after you get done with the bird sanctuary in the spring, it can be mulched, used as mulch around your plants, or it can be used as a mulch on walkways. Now, I'll tell you, I've got a, a good story to tell you. When my youngest son, our second son, wanted a Christmas tree, he always wanted one with a long stem underneath it. That way, he said, we could always have bigger presents if we have a long <laughs> stem under our tree. Love it. Now, as you buy your Christmas tree, you, I think you realize you're supporting an American product and an agricultural product used by American farmers. How old how old was your second son when he when he came up with that? He was about 6 years old when he came up with that. He was yeah. the entrepreneur of the family. <laughs> well, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh really appreciate it and have a happy holiday and a great Christmas and I'm sure that, you know, everybody in in Jackson um are going to be heading to the farm and and you know, get on one of those Belgian horses and pick out their tree. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Phil, and it's a pleasure being here. And thank you for joining us on Farm Food Facts. For more information on all things food and agriculture and to listen to our archives, please visit fooddialogues.com, look under the Programs and Media tab, and until next week.